We're going to the first chapter of the book of Acts. I'm going to teach more than preach this morning. And uh, we may do a little bit of New Testament church history. And then by faith, I'm believing that somebody's going to have a New Testament experience. Amen. History of the Word of God is only of any real value if it finds an application in the present. You can be a Bible scholar and you can be an expert in original languages and that sort of thing, but unless it's got an application right here and now, it's just history. And uh, Somebody said once that history teaches us that we learn nothing from history. Sometimes that's true, but God forbid that's how it should be in the church. Every Every story, every account, every record that's in the Scripture is there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. Some of those reasons are more obvious than others, but everything is there to teach us and show us something. Amen. Acts chapter 1, starting to read at verse 1. Let's pray before we read. Father, we're thankful for your presence here. We're thankful, Lord, for your ministry amongst us by your Spirit, Lord. We're in encouraged by the testimonies, by what we've learned about missions, Lord, by the gifts of your Spirit in operation. And now as we open your Word, Lord, we ask you to speak to us, Lord. Let our hearts be good soil, Lord. Let your Word find its place in our hearts and let us respond in faith and obedience to your Word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1, says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence, or not many days from now. And when they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They were in a a natural mindset, thinking about natural Israel. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. As many of you could quote the next verse, it says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Or... Some modern translations say the ends of the earth. And if you look at a globe and you look at Jerusalem and then you look where Perth is, that's where we are. We're at the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Amen. After the Lord had risen from the dead, he spent some more time with his disciples, about five or six weeks and uh, which came to a conclusion in Acts chapter 1 where he ascended into heaven before their eyes as we just read. You know, there's very little record in the later chapters of the four Gospels of the conversations that Jesus had with his disciples after he rose again. 
There's a little bit at the end of John when he was talking with Peter on the, the side of the Sea of Galilee, but there's not a lot of record of the dialogue. And one of the things that's on that long list of questions I have for when I get to heaven is what did he talk to his disciples about after he rose from the dead? We have so much uh, recorded about what happened before the crucifixion, but not so much afterwards. But part of the Lord's final communication to his disciples was that they were to stay in Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father or to receive the Holy Ghost. And we know that this happened in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, which is where we get the name Pentecostal from. So many times people say to me, what kind of church do you go to? And I'll say, a Pentecostal church. I know what the next question is going to be. What in the world is that? Or, Or what does that mean? It's not a word you learn at school. It's not a word that people use every day at the dinner table. But it is a word that we recognize from the scripture as being a feast on the Jewish calendar. And in Acts chapter 2, it was on that day that the Lord poured out his spirit for the first time. And we know there are 120 people praying in the upper room and God poured out his spirit there. And those people there spoke in other tongues, or in other words, they spoke languages that they'd never learned before, which was the miraculous evidence that they had been filled with the Holy Ghost. I'm glad this morning that Jesus is still filling people with the Holy Ghost today. If you have the Spirit of the Lord this morning, you ought to be glad that He's still pouring out His Spirit. There are some people that believe that it was only for that first century church to kind of give it a kickstart and get it off the ground. But I'm glad that that's not biblically accurate. I'm glad that He still fills people with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. As many of you can testify, and if you've never been filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, Acts chapter 2 says that promise is yours. Amen. And last week as we shared our vision and our goals for the year, we had a young man filled with the Holy Ghost at the end of the service last Sunday morning. And so we rejoice in that, that God is still pouring out His Spirit. But in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, as we read, Jesus told them that this Spirit would come upon them, that they would receive power, and that they would be witnesses unto Him, firstly in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And if you understand much of that kind of the culture and that part of the world, Jerusalem was Jewish. Samaria was mixed race between Jews and other nations, and the outermost parts of the world were the Gentiles, or people who were not Jews. And so the Lord was saying, this is not just about the natural kingdom of Israel, but this is going to start here, but it's designed, you're going to have power that will enable you, and you will be witnesses to me here first, but then to Samaria, and then it was designed to spread to the rest of the world. Amen. And so the church was born in Jerusalem. And if you read the first five, six, seven chapters of the book of Acts, you'll see that large numbers of people came into the church in what we would consider a fairly short period of time. 3,000 one day, 5,000 another day. Another place just says many were added to the church. And the church was growing. It was exciting. It was an exciting time. But the church wasn't really getting outside of Jerusalem. We're still stuck in that area. And we know there were some non-Jews that were in the church in Jerusalem because when you read Acts chapter 6... It lets us know that there were some Gentile widows that were complaining because they weren't being looked after the same way as the Jewish widows were. So there was obviously some non-Jews in that church in Jerusalem. But it was still pretty central 
to Jerusalem. They weren't getting out into Judea or Samaria or anywhere close to the ends of the earth at that stage. But then Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was stoned to death for his testimony. And then this crazy guy named Saul of Tarsus who was doing everything that he could to crush and destroy the church. One, one verse records that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He was trying to snuff out this new church. Somehow things started to get a little bit intense and people started to think about maybe we should go out of Jerusalem. It's amazing how a little bit of the Lord ruffling things up a bit caused them to think about maybe leaving town. And then Philip who was one of the deacons in Acts chapter 6, one of Stephen's friends, we could say. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 that he went down to Samaria, to that area that was mixed race between Jews and Gentiles, and he preached Christ to them. He took this gospel, he took the message of this new experience of being born of water and spirit, of being baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, and he went down and he preached in Samaria. And that power and that witness that Jesus had said they would receive in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 began to be demonstrated through Philip's ministry in Samaria. Many miracles took place, people were healed, people were delivered of demon possession and that witness and the gospel message together turned the city of Samaria upside down. When you read the 8th chapter of Acts you'll see that the whole city it seems was, was turned towards the message that Philip was preaching and and, and they were being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when news got back to Jerusalem, to the elders that were still there, they sent Peter and John down to Samaria. And when Peter and John went down and they prayed for them, the people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, it's important we understand you don't need an elder to pray for you to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. There was more at work here than just people receiving the Holy Ghost. God was establishing His church. But... The Lord, the, the experience that the original 120 had in Acts chapter 2 was now being also had in the city of Samaria. As people who had been baptized in Jesus' name, seeing the miraculous power of God in demonstration, were now receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost just like they had in Acts chapter 2. And the church was growing. So a little trouble in Jerusalem helped to give the church a little push onto the mission field. Amen. But if you'll go with me to Acts chapter 6, we want to read some scripture here. Sorry, Acts chapter 8, not Acts chapter 6. Because in the midst of all of this story, that this great revival that's happening in Samaria, there's another story that's happening at the same time. We might say in a parallel lane, in a, in, a, in a different theater. There's another story being played out. In Acts chapter 8, verse 26, right in the middle of this revival, just after, see, Peter and John have come down, all these new converts in Samaria have been filled with the Holy Ghost. Peter and John head back to Jerusalem, preaching in the villages of Samaria along the way. And Philip's Philip's in what a young evangelist would consider perfection. He's in a revival where an entire area is turning to Jesus Christ. They're not only now being baptized and being healed, but they're also receiving the Holy it's, it's It's what every preacher wants to be involved in, people being born again. That's what it's all about. But while all of that is going on in Acts chapter 8 and verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, 
saying, Arise and go toward the south under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. He was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. I'm sure that was a better option than walking in the desert, riding in the chariot. And the place of the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, or I ask thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, which in our modern Bibles that have chapters and verses was Isaiah chapter 53, and preached unto him Jesus. Took an Old Testament text, didn't have a New Testament text to take. He was in the New Testament. But he took an Old Testament text from a prophet that had been written some 700 years previously and preached unto this man Jesus. And when Philip is in the midst of this revival in Samaria, God directs him. That's why it's important we're led by the Spirit. God directs him to leave a citywide revival, to head down to the desert because there's an Ethiopian man that's on his way home after having traveled to Jerusalem. Amen. So it's possible... I would suggest even likely that while Philip was preaching in Samaria, this man was on his way to Jerusalem to worship. In fact, he may have already been there. Some commentators suggest that the Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem during the time of the crucifixion. I don't know that that's able to be verified or not. It's just somebody's opinion. There's a couple of interesting points because an Ethiopian traveling to Jerusalem to worship wasn't something you read in every chapter of the Bible. It's, it's a little bit of an unusual or a unique uh, account. And Ethiopia in biblical times was a region that was larger than the nation that we know of as Ethiopia today. If you look at a map, you'll see it has borders, but it was a bigger region back then. And uh, it is not at all uncommon in the ancient world. Thank you, Jesus. We don't live in those situations today. But for men who served in royal households or who served... In, in kingdoms at high levels, it was not uncommon for them to be castrated or to be made into eunuchs to remove any potential problems or threats that might occur. And that's as far as I'm going to develop that thought. The connection, which is interesting when you look at it, the connection between Ethiopia and Israel is possibly greater than we might think. There's a lot of traditional opinions and things that are difficult to verify, but there are apparently at present over 100,000 Ethiopian Jews that live in Israel today who make claim to being descendants of the lost tribe of Dan. Now, I'm not sure that you can find that in too many places other than Wikipedia and maybe not be able to actually verify that, but that's an interesting claim to make. And there is certainly historical accounts of people going to 
Ethiopia many, many, many years ago, centuries ago, and finding people that held to a form of what we would know as Judaism. And the, the royal bloodline of Ethiopia that the kings traditionally claim, again, not completely able to be verified, so you can dismiss this at a moment if you want to, but they claim to be descendants of a relationship between King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. They claim that she had a son to Solomon and that through that lineage came the, the royal bloodline of Ethiopia. That's, that's for you to go home and look at if you want to. Hopefully you don't end up in all sorts of crazy ideas. But that's a couple of interesting facts. And so these point. let me rephrase it. That's a couple of interesting thoughts. I shouldn't use the word facts if I can't verify that. Got to be careful. But these points give us a little bit of insight into how possibly an Ethiopian man was traveling to Jerusalem to worship. How a man from the northern area of Africa was traveling to the capital of the Jewish nation to worship the God that the Jews worshipped. Because um, it obviously wasn't a strange idea to him. He didn't just get up one day and think, you know what I think I'll do? I think I'll pack, a, a, pack up a group of people, head to Jerusalem and go to church. There was obviously some kind of faith and experience in this man's heart and in this man's life. Now, he's reading the book of Isaiah, and I'm rambling a little bit here but i'll bring it back together shortly my question is did he get the copy of the scripture he had while he was in jerusalem or did he have it all along who knows if he got it while he was in jerusalem it would have cost him an incredible amount of money because of the strict rules for copying the scripture and so when philip said to him do you understand what you're reading the man said how can i except somebody guide me Amen. Who is this man talking about? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about some other man? And so Philip began at those exact scriptures. I want to read them again. The ones that, that, Philip, that are referenced in Acts chapter 8. It says, The place of the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb done before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away when you break down what that means it means that he did not get justice jesus was tried unfairly he didn't deserve the punishment he got his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation for his life was taken from the earth amen so philip it is it's not recorded exactly for us but i think it's a safe uh, conclusion maybe or idea to, to decide that the very message that Philip had been preaching in Samaria was the same message that he shared with the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot that day. He may have already been in Jerusalem. He may have already heard about Jesus. He may have even heard about the crucifixion. But Philip shared the same message with this Ethiopian that he just shared with the entire city or region of Samaria. And I'll reveal a little bit more of how I'm confident about that, hopefully in a minute or two. But let me get back to where I'm supposed to be up to in my notes. But when you bring all of the components of this story together, you sometimes, I know at least I'm guilty of reading Scripture and reading stories or accounts that I've read many, many times and not really stopping to think about what was actually going on in that story. When you read the Word of God, don't be in a rush. Allow it to speak to you. I think it was Spurgeon that said he'd rather soak his soul in a few verses than rinse his hands in several chapters. 
it's important that we allow the richness of God's Word to speak to us when we look at it. Because when we consider what was going on, we can get a, a bit more insight into what was happening in this Ethiopian's heart while Philip was preaching to him. He had traveled to Jerusalem to worship. He wasn't on a tour. He wasn't on a holiday. He wasn't saying, hey, I've heard about these, these strange people that live over on the edge of the, the Mediterranean Sea. I want to go and check them out and take some photos from my, my holiday albums. But he had traveled to Jerusalem to worship. It was a decision that cost him time, that cost him, no doubt, a lot of finance, and it was a dangerous trip. He didn't just head down to the airport and get on a plane and land in Jerusalem. He had to travel across the land. He possibly traveled in a boat for a portion of that trip, and then in chariots. It was dangerous. There were many people whose hands he could have fallen into. He would have been a man that was wealthy. So there was a sincerity about his purpose. It wasn't just uh, something they came up with one day. He made a plan to travel to Jerusalem to worship. Now, whether he'd heard about Jesus while he was there, we don't know. But we do know from the law of Moses that when he got to Jerusalem to worship, he would not have been allowed into the temple. wouldn't have been recognized as a Jew. Not only that, the temple, if you look at it in New Testament times, had an outer court that was called the court of the Gentiles, for those that were not as clean as the Jews. But he wouldn't have even been allowed access to that because he was a eunuch. So he traveled all that way to worship, only to be rejected, not even allowed into the outer courtyard. And so traveling home to Ethiopia, I have no doubt that he felt dissatisfied. All that way to be rejected. All those days and weeks of travel to get there and be told, sorry, you have to stay at a, at a safe distance. All that time, all that money, and all that risk only to be able to watch from a long way away. And we went, my family and I went to the States in 2011 and we did some of the tourist things. We saw the White House. You know where we saw it from? From a fence about, I don't know how far away we saw the White House from. We couldn't just walk up and knock on the door and ask if we could have a cup of coffee with the president. It doesn't work like that. So that's what it was like for this man. He could see the temple, but he couldn't come in. He couldn't, his worship was not considered acceptable. And he traveled so far to do that. And so on his way home with that disappointment, and that rejection is still in his heart. He reads a passage. You know, God is incredible. I mean, the book of Isaiah is some, what, 66 chapters long? God has him in an exact passage speaking about, prophetically, about a, a Messiah who's not long given his life for the world. Lines him up with an evangelist at the right place and in the right passage, and he reads about a man who would be humiliated. He reads about a man who would suffer shame and judgment and humiliation. And something in the Ethiopian eunuch's heart feels a connection. And he says, who is he talking about? Is it about himself or some other man? But then he also reads of a man that the Scripture says, would who shall declare his generation? There will be no children. There will be no descendants. There will be no family to carry his name. Something else that he knew he would also have to bear in his own life because of what had happened 
to him. God knows exactly what we need to hear. And then Philip begins to tell him that this man that he's written about in Isaiah is Jesus Christ who would die for every sinner, not just the Jews, but every sinner that he would make a way for everybody to have their sins washed away, that he would take everybody's humiliation, everybody's shame, and all everybody's rejection, and he would take that upon himself and pay the price for that himself, and that he would wash their sins away. Don't tell me this didn't connect with the emotions that the Ethiopian... Ethiopian eunuch was feeling while he was riding in that chariot after weeks and possibly months of travel to be humiliated and told you cannot come to church you're not good enough you're the wrong kind of person you've got a defect that will not allow you you've got to look at it from a distance and he's going home feeling every one of those things that he reads about in Isaiah chapter 53 and Philip would have told him the same message he told the people in Samaria that they, they needed to repent of their sins, to be baptized in Jesus' name, and to have those sins washed away. How do I know Philip told him that? Because verse 36 of Acts chapter 8 says, that As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, There's water here. He said, What does hinder me from being baptized? That was where his heart was at. What hinders me? What's stopping me this time? You've talked to me about baptism. You've talked to me about having my sins washed away in Jesus' name. What is it that stops me now? What is it that every step I've taken, I've been turned away? At every point in this trip, I've been rejected. I've been told I wasn't good enough, wrong kind of person, wrong kind of body, wrong kind of faith. I couldn't be... What is it now that hinders me? What stops me from doing what you're talking to me about. He was basically saying, I'm tired of being rejected, tired of being stopped. I'm tired of my race, my culture, my physical limitations making me unacceptable. What's the catch, Philip? What's the catch? And then in verse 37, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you can. If you believe what I've just shared with you with all your heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't know the exact words that Philip preached in the chariot that day, but I know that he told him, he said, that man in Isaiah 53, his name is Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He died for mine. He, wants to, he took humiliation and shame and rejection on himself so you didn't have to have it. And if you will believe that he died for your sins, if you will believe that you need salvation, you can be baptized in Jesus' name. Aren't you thankful this morning that there's nothing that stops us if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Because then in verse 38 it says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. Finally, I'm allowed to do something. Finally, they're saying I can actually have part in what is going on. And they went down, both of them, into the water. He didn't take out his water bottle and sprinkle a little bit on his head, but they went down into the water together, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. 
All of that trip up until that point had been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. But when he came in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ and Philip said, you can have your sins washed away. And he said, what's stopping me this time? Thankfully, there was nothing that disqualified him except his need to have faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. And I want to echo the Ethiopian eunuch's question this morning. What hinders you from being baptized in Jesus' name? What is it that stops any one of us that hasn't been baptized in Jesus' name this morning? What are the things that get in our way? What are the excuses that we make or the things that we're afraid of? Is it our culture? Is it our tradition? Have we been raised in a particular way and had a particular belief for such a long time that it's hard to let the Scripture give us the truth as the Lord would have us to understand it? Were we baptized as infants in an orthodox religion? And many people have had that experience of very sincere parents who took their little children to church and had them baptized. But you see, the Scripture says, what did, what did Philip say to the eunuch? He said, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. No infant believes much at all. And so there's no faith involved in that process. And so what you have is tradition, sincere, but unfortunately an error. So we have to consider, is tradition something that stops me from being baptized in Jesus' name? Is it because we've been baptized in another way that wasn't exactly Jesus' name? Again, with genuine sincerity. But the Scripture says that in that name, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no record anywhere in the Scripture of anybody being baptized in any other name except for Jesus' name. You know, you might say, well, Pastor, it doesn't say there when Philip baptized, it just says he baptized him. It doesn't say anything about the name of Jesus. The beginning of the chapter tells us that Samaria was all baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why would Philip change it for this one man in the desert? Everywhere we read. So you're saying that I should maybe get baptized again. Well, if you read the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, you'll see that the apostle Paul came to Ephesus and he found some disciples, believers, disciples. People that believed in God. People that were doing everything they could to live for God. Sincere, genuine in their hearts. And he said to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? That question does away with another false idea. Some people believe that when you just believe in God, you get the Holy Ghost straight away. Paul's question was, have you got it since you believed? And they said, have we got the Holy what? They'd never even heard of the Holy Ghost. And so then he said, well, okay, they don't, they don't know what this is. Let's take it back a step. He said, how were you baptized? Obviously, it mattered. Otherwise, why ask the question? Why ask the question if it was unimportant? But he said, how were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized under John's baptism. And Paul said, Paul didn't say, oh, that's a lot of rubbish. He said, John truly baptized with a baptism of repentance saying that they should believe on the one that should come after, on Jesus Christ. And if you read Acts 19, chapter, chapter 19 and verse 5, I believe it is. It's 5 or 6, one or the other. You can turn there if you want, if you think I'm making this up. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
when they realized that there was a little more that they needed to understand, they obeyed. Amen. What hinders us this morning from being baptized in Jesus' name? In verse 6 it says, And then Paul laid his hands on them, and the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake in tongues and prophesied. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture throughout the book of Acts. In fact, when you read Acts chapter 22, you'll see the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony. His testimony actually took place in Acts chapter 9, I believe it was. But he's telling his story again. And he said, you know, I was going on my way to Damascus and this light and this voice and I couldn't see. And this man named Ananias was sent to him of the Lord. And Ananias came to the Apostle Paul and he said, the Lord's chosen you. Let's, let's read it. Let's turn that again. Acts chapter 22. It's good to be biblically accurate, not just wandering around. Acts chapter 22. Let's, let's start at verse 6. It says, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh to Damascus, about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. And I fell unto the ground and heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered and said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. God was speaking directly to the man that was then Saul of Tarsus, but became the apostle Paul. Imagine what this was doing to Paul's mind, if you will, for a moment. Here's a man who knew the Old Testament upside down. He could debate, he could teach, he knew the law of the Lord, he knew the law of Moses, he knew the prophets. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was convinced beyond 100% that what he believed was right. In fact, he was convinced that he was actually serving God, persecuting the church. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a villain. He wasn't a thug. He thought he was doing something holy and righteous. And so he was convinced that he was the servant of the Lord. And he's out there grabbing these crazy Christian heretics and throwing them in prison and watching while Stephen's stoned to death and serving the Lord with all his heart. No lack of sincerity. A very sincere man. If we could use a bit of that kind of sincerity and that kind of zeal. But the Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. And when he asked him, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. And everything in Paul's head just went, Whoof. Because the one that he was determined to destroy had just spoken to him from heaven. And in a moment's time, Paul, Saul, then Paul, begin to understand that the one that spoke to him was the one he thought he was serving all through the Old Testament. And his brain would have just been going crazy, trying to reconcile what was happening in his mind. And so we continue to read in verse 10. It says, And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all things which are appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of the Jews, 
which dwelt there came unto me. Now when you read that account a little earlier in the book of Acts, when the Lord says to Ananias, this guy Saul, you need to go pray for him, he's on such and such a street, Ananias is like, excuse me? He's like, Lord, do you not know this guy's reputation? He's, he's persecuting your church. Basically, Ananias was saying, I don't really want to go to prison, Lord. That's basically what he was saying. I'm a little concerned for my well-being. And the Lord said, basically, as he spoke to us through the gifts this morning, trust me, it's going to be okay. So Ananias goes in, in verse 13, and said, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. In the same hour I looked upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And then in verse 16 he said, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. A more modern translation says, What are you waiting for? Get up and get baptized. It didn't say begin our 14-week Bible study class. He said get baptized in the name of the Lord. He said you know what you need to do. What's hindering you? What are you waiting for? What are you delaying? What is it that can possibly be stopping you? And we have to be willing to ask ourselves that question as well. Well, I came from this church and I was baptized a particular way in a particular formula. That's good. Nobody doubts your faith or your sincerity. But Paul said to the believers at Ephesus, you need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he took those people that had been baptized once and he baptized them again. You know, if you ever have the privilege to travel to East Timor, there's an older man there, Brother Brother Bernardo, who is a man that has been faithful to the Lord for many, many years, even to the point of being put in prison for being a Christian. And when you talk to him, whenever he gives his testimony, he talks about his journey of faith. And he'll always stand up and he'll say, I've been baptized three times. <laughs> he says, when I was a kid in the Catholic Church, because Timor was a Portuguese uh, colony, very strong Catholic influence historically. And then he said, and I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost as well. And he said, but when somebody showed me in the Scripture that they were baptized in Jesus' name and that that's the only name whereby we can be saved and how the Bible says, let everything you do in word or deed be done in the name of Jesus, this old man will say, I was baptized again in Jesus' name. He said, the other two don't count. He said, it was the last one where I finally got it right. And he loves to share his testimony. And without being rude this morning, if we're not baptized the same way the apostles did it, are we really baptized? Or did we just get wet? Again, this, this is not questioning anybody's faith or anybody's sincerity. You will read in multiple places throughout the book of Acts where the apostles came in contact with people who had some knowledge of Jesus, some knowledge of the things of God. You read about these disciples at Ephesus. You read about Apollos, how when Priscilla and Aquila came in touch with him, they found out that he was a, a, an eloquent preacher and as they discussed with him what he believed, it says they took him and they showed him the word of God more perfectly. They completed his understanding. We need to do what the scripture says. We need to ask ourselves this morning, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, what hinders me? What is it that hinders me from being baptized in Jesus' name? 
Is it because I'm reluctant to admit that my past experience is incomplete? Or is it because of family pressure and tradition? And those things can be very real, particularly in some cultures and some families. But what really hinders me? You see, Paul, I'm glad he didn't, but Paul could have said, wow, that was just a crazy experience. I was out in the sun too long, wasn't wearing a hat. That was nuts. I could go back to Jerusalem and get some rest and get sorted out. He could have denied what happened to him. I've seen people, I've known people that have come into an apostolic service like we have here, felt the presence of God, seen the presence of God, seen the instruction of the Scripture, and walked away like they'd never seen it. What does hinder us from obeying the gospel? Nobody's forcing anybody. I've told this story many times, and we all get a laugh out of it, but when we were children, we used to baptize each other in the pool all the time. All the time grab our friends and slam them under the water in Jesus' name. Nobody's sins were ever taken away doing that. Probably nearly drowned a few of, each of our friends. I had coffee with one of my childhood friends yesterday that we used to do that with about 30-odd years ago. But when there is faith in our hearts, you see that Ethiopian eunuch? Nobody could question his sincerity. That man knew what it was to be rejected. That man knew what it was to be turned away, to be told you're not good enough, to be humiliated, to be shamed. But when he heard the word of God, he wanted to know, what is it that stops me? What stops me from being baptized in Jesus' name? Is there anything that's blocking me? You see, that needs to be where our hearts are at. You know, some people say, well, do I have to be baptized in Jesus' name? That's the wrong question. The question is, am I blessed enough to have the opportunity to be baptized in Jesus' name? Am I really allowed to go down by faith into the water in the name of my Savior and every one of my sins that I've ever committed, every lie, every evil thought, every evil act to be washed from my account? That's the question we ought to be asking. Is it really possible that a man that died 2,000 years ago can wipe my record clean? Is that really possible? So when people say, oh, do I have to be baptized in Jesus' name? It's like saying, do I have to go to heaven, really? You don't have to, but you have the opportunity to be saved. But what hinders us? Is it our pride? Is it our tradition? We know the Bible says in Matthew chapter 28, the Lord said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We know that. But the question is, what did that mean? What did that instruction really mean? Because the people that heard those words in the next book baptized everybody in Jesus' name. So either that was what Jesus meant or they got it wrong. And if they got it wrong, then we've got a problem with the book. Because if they got it wrong, then the Scripture's faulty. What can we trust? Because the people that got the baptism wrong wrote half the words we're reading. So we have to take out the parts they wrote because they're a little bit confused. But we just have to, when the Lord said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, what was that name? The name of Jesus. I don't want to get into a long Bible study about this this morning, but he said, the Bible tells us that he got his name by inheritance from his Father. The Bible also says that the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ. It's not three different persons, but when we use the name of Jesus, Colossians 2 and verse 9 says, For in him 
dwells or resides or lives the fullness, the completeness, the totality of the Godhead bodily. And so when we use the name of Jesus, we are not using the name of a part of God, but we're using the, the, the fullness of the power of God in that name that was revealed for our salvation. We can look at history. You can study church history in the first century. You won't find anybody baptized any other way except in Jesus' name. Doesn't, it's not there. That's not Pentecostal history. That's just general history. The early church believed and practiced the act of baptizing in the name of Jesus. And so this is just a simple message this morning, but the question is, what hinders you from being baptized in Jesus' name? If you've never been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, if you've never had your sins washed away by being baptized in his name, what holds you back? What reason is there that's good enough to say, no, I'd rather keep my sins, thanks? Why would we want to keep our shame, keep our guilt, keep our humiliation, keep the consequences on our account when he's offering to take them on his? What hinders us from being baptized in Jesus' name this morning? I want you to stand with me.